Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is enormously impressive. She spent over 10 years making documentaries and she worked for the BBC's Digital Curriculum Project before shifting to a career in research. She's now a senior research fellow at King's College London's Policy Unit and a non-executive director at Ridgeway Information, which provides open source intelligence for commercial clients, governments and the third sector. Passionate about storytelling, she's also a trustee of the Hay Festival Foundation and chairperson of Rising Tide, an early career network for women. Her new book, and indeed her first book, Authenticity, Reclaiming Reality in a Counterfeit Culture, was born from the revelation that a friend she thought she knew was a fantasist and a fraud. Authenticity tells stories of fraud, fakery and realness across art, technology, business and nature. Its author asks what authenticity is and isn't and why it matters. Alice Sherwood, welcome to Meet the Writers. Hello, Georgina. It is a total thrill to be here. Well, it's so wonderful to, to have you in the seat, particularly having read this book that not only makes one think and questions things, but it's just a rollicking good read. There are such great stories in there. I want to start with your own story, because as you describe it, you grew up in the chicken soup belt. <laughs> Tell us what that means. I, I don't know if it's been called the chicken soup belt before, but to me it is. It is a sort of swathe of North London where I think more or less second generation immigrant Jews live. And they have different characteristics, whether they live in, this is getting really detailed, whether they live in Edgware or there's the very intellectual tendency in Hampstead and Highgate and there's the kind of more business-minded, you know, tough street traders as you go into Essex. But it is a very self-contained world. And so there are no real issues of who to trust and not to trust, not because everybody is completely trustworthy and authentic, but because we all know each other. Mm. So we know that person or that family, oh, they were always a bad lot, don't trust them. So I did grow up not really having to be suspicious or fact-checking because there was a, it was known, there was a sort of constitution of knowledge already there. And you describe growing up in a, in a family where everybody read music, for instance, and there's this wonderful feeling of, of community and coming together, not, not just as one family, but as you say, this whole constellation of families. It was completely wonderful. And yes, an awful lot revolved around music. And it's something, OK, I never learnt to do two things my family did really well, which is play music and play bridge. So I can't do either of those. But people really did congregate together they made music together it was it was very moving mm. it was very moving and i mean contrast that wonderful kind of cohesiveness with the horrible divisions in the world today and it's clear why this book is necessary but it also became necessary through a, a, an experience you had with somebody whom you call alistair in the book i call him alistair obviously not his name but he was a great friend and a colleague and he was someone, and this is, I have to say, pre-internet, because before you start going, Alice, how did you not look him up? There was no <laughs> internet to look him up. And I didn't realise at the time, but more or less everything he told me about himself was not true. He was a fantasist, he was a fabulist, and in fact, I now know that the lies he told about himself are pretty much the classic red flags to watch out for any imposter so that I can tell you what they are. They are, you know, 
If somebody says they're aristocratic, well, maybe they are. If they then have... If they really are, they probably wouldn't tell you, though. <laughs> they wouldn't need to. Or as one of my grandest friends said, but of course, I, I, I knew he couldn't be who he said he, he, he was because one would have known him. Went, well, actually, you would have known him, yeah. but I didn't know. So, you know, and he... Um, oh, if somebody has a, a tragedy in their background, very sympathy-inducing if they have a long-running but not quite fatal or not yet fatal illness, more sympathy, and particularly what I call the James Bond red flag, if they are doing something secret but important, yes, you know, that they can't tell you about, but, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, security, you know what I mean. And he did all of those. <laughs> and I just have to say, because I think this is a more general point about establishing authenticity, is the importance of context so you may not believe one or other of those lies, but if you're at their house and there's a big old Nella portrait, which somehow you're led to believe is an ancestor, or if you see this person, as I did, with someone I knew because it had been in the papers, to be a rogue MI6 spy, context. You know, it is very, very convincing. And I think that's one of the themes running through the book, which is, context is incredibly powerful. Mm. And we believe sometimes because we want to believe. And I mean, that's one other thing that you point out when you talk about various con artists. In fact, the first part of the book, you introduce us to various con artists. You have this wonderful phrase about, you know, not getting something for nothing, you get nothing for something. Yeah. Perhaps just explain that to us. Well, I hope I'm not too in love with my con artists. I hope I've got a balanced view. But the art of the con artist is the real con artist, is that they don't con you, they work with you. So they tap into your, whatever your deepest desire, which might be money, it might be love, and they come up with something that is just your heart's desire. And at that point, you know, they spin a good story, they spin a story that is actually too good to be true, but you want to believe, mm. and they know. And they make you complicit because the, it is usually involving you in something that you shouldn't be doing. And once you're complicit, once they've infected you with their, uh, their deception, then you're gone. And what I love about this book is that this is not some kind of dry academic discussion of, of how these things happen. You illustrate them with, with real life stories. I mean, so for instance, one of them is you, you know, white van man, you know, are you going to buy this very expensive looking equipment that you don't actually get to see inside the box? Or there's a fantastic story set in Germany involving turkeys. Tell us that. OK, this is, they're all my favourites, but that is one of my absolute favourites because it it illustrates two things. It illustrates what people want to believe and that kind of complicity that we just talked about with one person and a con artist, but at a countrywide level. And so it is, I mean, it's a true story, obviously. It happened just after the Second World War when Germany was completely destroyed and the Allied bombings, Bomber Command bombings, they bombed a church in a town called Lübeck and the bombing revealed as the walls crumbled, some medieval frescoes below, beneath the, the whitewash. And after the war, they looked and they saw these frescoes and they thought, this is Gothic, this is wonderful, this is a miracle. The bombing revealed these, we must restore them. Sent in the restorers 
And guess what? There were these magnificent frescoes underneath once restored and they spoke of the greatness of Germany in an earlier age. And there were huge celebrations and the frescoes appeared on stamps and they were written up in Time magazine and they had huge celebrations. And then a year later, the restorer walked into the police station and said, I faked them. And nobody, nobody would believe him because they didn't want to. And then there was a huge trial. But the interesting thing for me is that Everyone at every level, really from Chancellor Adenauer, who'd sort of opened the celebration of these murals, all the way down to the townspeople, the restorers, everyone either knew or would have known if they'd just given it a little bit of thought, but they didn't want to. Mm. Because this, to coin a phrase, was something that would make Germany great again. And even when they were confronted with turkeys in the murals, which couldn't possibly have existed in Europe at that time. <laughs> I loved it because this, one of the things they said, well, you couldn't have forged them because they look exactly, they're clearly by the same Gothic master as the Schleswig Cathedral murals. And he said, no, I also painted those. <laughs> and finally, as you say, he had painted uh, a sort of medieval bestiary with some turkeys. And turkeys are a new world bird. And they couldn't have come to Europe before Columbus sailed. And therefore, they rewrote history. And they actually said, well, Columbus can't have been the first European to land on the American continent. It must have been a German, a Nordic person. We're going to rewrite history because we can see those turkeys. Prove it. It was insane. It was absolutely insane. They were rewriting history on the basis of a picture of a turkey. And of course, it's not just humans that do this. I mean, we see it in the animal world too. This was one of the things that I loved because when I sort of moved on in my research from humans, I became very interested in our biological wiring. Why is there so much deception around? Are we wired to do it? And actually, it was one day in my bathroom when I, I thought I'd sort of seen a sort of crinkled leaf, sort of dead leaf that I wanted to get rid of. Uh, looked at it a little bit more closely as I was just about to get rid of it and I saw it was a butterfly that was the most perfect mimic of a dead leaf. And this took me very much into the world of animals, which is a different sort of imposture because it's unconscious. Mm. And at that point, I started looking at the really, the big forces. What is going on here that we can end up with this unbelievably perfect mimicry uh, and we've seen it all. We've seen, you know, moths that you can't tell from from the bark of a tree or those plants that David Attenborough did a thing on them that look exactly like stones. Or, I mean, there's extraordinary mimicry in nature. Quite, quite a lot of animals pretending to be other animals, uh, which is quite impressive. And you then have to look at the evolutionary forces and how evolution favours fakery. Mm. And it does. But, of course, you can't blame an animal. It's not their fault. It's very funny because when we talk about animals, so I, I've i got a lovely story about a cuckoo-like bird, which is a cuckoo finch, that copies other birds' eggs and then just leaves them in that poor bird's nest to raise and then the cuckoo buggers off and has a good time elsewhere. And cuckoos have always been regarded as really feckless parents. So we don't like them. But when we see one butterfly mimicking a beautiful but more poisonous one because it's good defense we go oh how wonderful 
So we, we are quite interesting in our, our language. We do sometimes blame them or we use the language of blame. Mm. We, we, we anthropomorphise in a, a sort of way that I tried very hard not to and then when I was telling the stories, failed. <laughs> Uh, the stories move on through many, many different... I mean, you look at so many different areas in the world. One of those is money, uh, and it's very interesting. I mean, what is counterfeit and what's just not real? And what makes it real or not real? I got very interested, having moved on from a section on, on biological wiring, onto the authenticity of things, and I do start with money. And money is very interesting. Firstly, it's it's really the only thing that when counterfeited has routinely attracted the death penalty across most all countries, I think almost all countries, and even up to nearly the present day. So it's counterfeiting money is uniquely dangerous. You know, you're not going to get hung for faking someone's picture, but you would have got hung for that. And the whole point about money is that you print lots of it. So whoever makes the most of, prints the most, whoever proliferates, it's a chapter called Multipliers, whoever makes the most copies wins, as it were. Mm. So it's a very different sort of, it's a very different sort of counterfeit because it's fungible. The things are exactly the same, but it's who has control. This is why governments are very, very determined to keep control of who prints and mints money, because it's about power. Mm. Mm. It goes on, not just money, but, but also into art. Well, I, that's what is, is so interesting because the, the contrast, whereas even now, if you fake money, you know, you're likely to go to jail. But if we look at certainly modern artists, and I, I choose Andy Warhol for that one, Andy Warhol actually encouraged people to fake his pictures. So he did say, and he very much played with this concept of, of what is authenticity in art, because, you know, fans would come up to him and say, oh, Mr Warhol, I love, you. I love your pictures. And he would go, oh, well, why, why don't you talk to Gerard? Because he painted most of them. <laughs> and he's just brilliant. He had a rubber stamp made with his signature on it so other people could sign, and it was a radio, you can't see quotes, uh, sign pictures for him. And now, of course, the art world gets his sort of can occasionally, she says, carefully get its knickers in somewhat of a twist when they're trying to authenticate mm. a picture that was never meant to be a unique work of art. Because, I mean, you go through, you explain all the different stages that's needed to authenticate a great master, for instance. In fact, the Warhol was never authenticated, but even though it was real, but there were no brush strokes, you couldn't actually ascribe it to him definitely. I really, really want to delve into brands now because you're so interesting on this. It's, I mean, why, I guess I have two questions here. Why do we want, for instance, a real Hermes bag? And how are so many produced that, that aren't? And what's the story behind that? I think brands are really interesting because they are a lot more than the basic physical product. So a brand is a product plus all sorts of things, cachet, dreams, cool celebrities who wear it, use it, lifestyles encapsulated in amazing adverts, hopes and dreams like Nike's Just Do It. So there's a whole load of stuff on top of the physical product 
that is intangible. In other words, you don't have it when you've got the product. There's nothing you can touch, but makes it so desirable. And again, it's tapping into our deepest desires. And, and of course, that the advertising and communications are very, you know, adept at knowing what presses our buttons. So there are these desirable objects that are much, much more than just a physical object. And quite often, the intangible marketing is done over here. And the physical product is manufactured wherever it's cheapest. And so you have this funny division of labour that is absolutely fine. Why shouldn't you? I, I actually, I don't know, I don't wear very many designer clothes, but the one or two I have, I feel different and special mm. because I, I know. It, it's playing my feelings back at me. It's selling me back my own feelings. It's like, I'm wearing this designer brand. I'm going out with additional confidence. But from a counterfeiter's point of view, this is their dream. Because all those intangibles are all the stuff that they don't have to bother to copy. All they have to do is copy the physical product as closely as possible and then free ride on all the image brand building stuff you've done, which is why we're now in a really interesting and, for the brands, terrifying situation. I mean, Louis Vuitton has got 61 full-time lawyers just hunting down the copyists. They are the most fake brand in the world. And luxury goods over the last, I think, couple of decades have tripled, but counterfeits of the same sorts of goods have increased 200-fold. So something is going on. The counterfeiters are doing their business. So we get back to complicity. If I buy a fake Hermes bag or Louis Vuitton, where they're known as three-second bags in Korea because they see, they say you see one on the streets every three seconds. <laughs> so it's quite a lot. If I buy a, a, a fake Louis Vuitton, am I being clever or am I being complicit? And does it devalue? I mean, I suppose it must do. You know, the one person who's got the real one, the one in 10 who's real, I mean, that's going to be dismissed as just another fake, probably. Some of the, well, some of the, not the what they would call true luxury, because that is very hard and expensive to fake, but yeah. the, the ones that are called, this is lovely marketing language, mastige goods, so mass prestige, mass prestige. So the aspiration is, is greater than the customer can afford, really. Yeah. And there, I think, quite often you'll find that the, the real thing and the fake are made in next-door factories yes. or, or maybe next-door tables. Yeah, quite extraordinary. Mm. And that also spills in, into food and drink. I mean, you've got a great story there about Snapple. I love the Snapple story because it's a story about stories and the whole book is stories, as you say. And it is about... It starts as the stories that marketers tell each other. And in this case, it's about Snapple, which was the cool, quirky, authentic drink of the 1980s. So it wasn't corporate and fake and glossy. It was real. Everything they did was authentic and random and quirky. And it was absolutely loved by people who, who wanted to feel a bit different. And it made its name on that. And it was bought by a conglomerate who tried to make it mainstream and got rid of all the quirk and got rid of the loudmouth Wendy the Snapple lady who did all the adverts and got rid of the fancy flavours and the randomness, and it absolutely tanked. And they ended up having to sell it for $1.4 billion less than they paid for it, which is not a great corporate result. And that, in the marketing story, is the end of the story. 
But actually, many years later, I was looking into it because I was very interested in the stories marketers tell each other as well as telling us. And an eagle-eyed journalist had spotted that Snapple Apple, which was their flagship product, contained no apple at all. So there was an arc from this juice that started off as unadulterated and the slogan is best stuff on earth, totally natural, still had the slogans on the bottle, but no apple. It had pear flavour because pear tastes a bit more apple than apple, apparently. It had a lot of water and more sugar than the same volume of Coca-Cola. It had gone the full arc from being the authentic drink to something that was anything but. And I, I just found that fascinating because it was still trading on its old image. Yeah. Yeah. At the very beginning of the book, you start with a lot of wonderful statistics. You say, on average, you'll be lied to three times within the first 10 minutes of meeting someone. Uh, when asked by researchers, you will admit to lying one and a half times a day, unless you are the 45th president of the United States, in which case you will lie 21 times a day, but not admit to it. And I, what I think is fantastic, as you point out later in the book, the name Trump is only mentioned once in a footnote. But in fact, a lot of this book is prompted, or at least a lot of our thoughts about truth and lies, are prompted by the very existence of this man. Totally. And it was a point of pride that he wouldn't turn up in the book in any real way at all. But there is, in the final chapter, uh, where we're, it's the one chapter where I talk about authenticity in terms of the misinformation problem that we have now. And during the pandemic in 2020, Cornell University did a study and they looked at 38 million pieces of misinformation about COVID. And they found that I think it's either 40 or 60% of them, can't remember, I'll have to check. A large percentage of these 38 million pieces of misinformation traced back to one man. Guess who? I'm not going to say his name. And so what we're talking about is there a real issue of the amplification of inauthenticity, which is the real problem that technology is. And I want to talk about technology, but just before we go there, as we're talking about politicians, I wonder how you feel about the current crisis of truth in our own leadership. I think it's really difficult. I mean, it's really difficult because I'm attached to the Policy Institute and, you know, very much want to say views, views my own. And so I'm, I always feel quite awkward talking about it. But what do I want to say about this? I think I want to say something that struck me very much like the Turkey story is that as the newspapers were going through the lies that have been told in our own country, various people were brought out to defend those lies and attack the people who attacked. And some very uncomfortable, very, very well-meaning young, youngish politicians, you know, shoved out to go and support it. And I suppose what I want to say is, in the main, politicians, most politicians are very decent and go in with genuine ambitions to change things and they find themselves in these positions where they have to make a decision about to be complicit or not be complicit and I think those are, are the parallels that at every level people have to decide am I going to go through the lobby and say I about this am I going to go out and defend something I don't feel is defensible 
have to make these decisions at every point. I think it's really difficult. Mm. I mean, you conclude the book really by saying that there are there are good people in the world and that we can battle misinformation and we can take on technology and we can win. And I think this is particularly relevant, for instance, looking at Russia and the misinformation that's coming out there to the citizens of Russia about Ukraine in order to justify uh, this terrible invasion. I don't want to sound overly Pollyanna-ish, but I am a cyber optimist. I'm not a, in Elliot Higgins, Bellingcat's phrase, I'm not a cyber miserablist. I don't think the internet is now making us indelibly faker than ever before. I think we've learnt to use the weapons. We're only 30, 40 years into the internet. It's early days. We have learnt individually, as communities, as organisations, as businesses, even governments are moving and the EU. And um, big tech is feeling it might have to move too. So stuff is going on. And I do list what I call my armies of truth because you you won't know about them unless you're in that particular field. And I would just say with reference to Russia, and what's quite interesting here is that there hasn't been the internet disinformation activity at the level that we saw in the 2016 election for a couple of reasons. One, that their troll factories have been sanctioned. So they've run out of money, as it were. Two, that there are people on the ground in Ukraine filming listening in, reporting on what Russia is doing, and therefore that cannot be gainsaid. But most importantly, and this is one of the new weapons, is governments have been very clever. They've been pre-bunking what Russia is about to say. So mm. they would say, Russia's annexed this bit now. They're about to hold fake elections. And pre-bunking is very powerful. Yes. Yeah. It really is. This whole book is is very powerful. As I say, I love, I love the stories, but I also, you also talk about, for instance, your, your early childhood fascination with magicians and how magic is really not disinformation. Magicians aren't lying to us, and that's a, a really interesting uh, a way of dividing this up. I love magicians. I love them, as I said at the beginning, uh, because they are the most honest people you'll ever meet, because magicians tell you they're going to deceive you. OK, it's a magic show. And then they do. Nobody else does that. And also because they were my first education, because I didn't have it in my little close world of North London, in the arts of deception. And I think the other thing they do is they make it clear that deception in the service of wonderment and delight is a wonderful thing. And that we mustn't totally rule out. We, we must love our fact-checking and our reclaiming of reality, but we mustn't lose the magic of the imagination of the extraordinary things. I mean, we don't want to lose the whole of fiction, do we? That's made up. So I, I love them to bits. And I love this book. Alice, thank you so much for talking to us. It's been a real treat for me. Thank you. Authenticity, Reclaiming Reality in a Counterfeit Culture is by Alice Sherwood. It's published by Mudlark and it's out now. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Nora Hole and Lillian Fawcett. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or app, from SoundCloud, Mixcloud or iTunes. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.